Before the episode, I want to acknowledge three sponsors of Think Like an Owner. The first is Live Oak Bank. Live Oak Bank is a seasoned SBA lender focused on search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire small companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Live Oak Bank directly to start a conversation at liveoakbank.com slash contact us. The second is Hood & Strong LLP. Hood & Strong is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. The third is Traction Capital Partners, a private investment firm based in Tacoma, Washington. Traction focuses on acquiring companies in the Pacific Northwest that have between $1 and $5 million in earnings. Visit their website at tractioncp.com or reach out to one of their partners, Justin Turner, directly at jturner at tractioncp.com. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and permanent capital. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more people find Think Like an Owner. I've done a few search fund-focused episodes. For instance, last week's episode with Jules Brenner focused on life during a search. In this episode exploring search funds, Betsy Brandt joins me to talk about preparing to launch her search fund, Forest Park Capital. I wanted to hear more about how a search fund is planned, the benefits of an MBA program, how capital is raised, and so on. Betsy was kind enough to share her experience working in investment banking and operating in a private equity-backed company, going through the search program at Harvard, starting and setting up her traditional search fund, and a few advantages of being a female searcher. This episode is a great review of the many questions asked when considering launching a search. If search is an option you've waited at any point, you'll love hearing from Betsy. Enjoy. Thanks for joining. I'm looking forward to having you on here. I want to have somebody who was about to start a search and had done a lot of the work leading up to it, talking to investors, MBA program, just to hear thoughts from that stage of a search. So do you want to go over your background and how you got into search and then why you chose your MBA program and how that process has gone for you? Yeah, of course. Happy to happy to be here. Thanks, Alex. So I am originally from Kansas City, Missouri. Great place to grow up. Love the Midwest. And it's funny, you know, finally being back after I spent, I guess, 11 years away, seven on the East Coast, and I just moved back to St. Louis to kind of start the search. So it's kind of a funny adjustment period being back in the Midwest after so long, got to adjust to the Midwestern friendliness. But I went to Vanderbilt University in, in Nashville, loved it studied economics. Um, we didn't really have a business major. But I think it's it's funny to look back on that because in contrast to those days, I remember looking back and I had no idea what I wanted to do in college. I think you have some of those people who come in sophomore year and say, oh, I absolutely must 
be an investment banker and go into finance. And, you know, I definitely was a little bit more confused. So it's funny thinking back to then, because I feel like I've had kind of a nice string of experiences that kind of led me to search. But I, you know, I took internships at a think tank, at an insurance company, took economics classes one summer, so all kinds of things. But going out of school, I wanted a really good learning experience for a couple of years. Wasn't sure exactly what that looked like, but I ended up joining Ernst & Young's consulting practice in the financial institutions group. So we were focused on performance improvement and risk management for the big banks in New York, essentially. But funny enough, I actually realized pretty early on that wasn't for me. It wasn't kind of this really intense training background that I really wanted coming out of school. So I recruited pretty quickly for an investment banking analyst role, actually, and ended up starting at Bank of America Merrill Lynch in the tech media telecom group a year after graduation. So I kind of started with the next analyst class. So risky making a jump, I think, from a first job after school, but I think it it totally paid off. I would recommend kind of those programs to anyone. It's a total business boot camp. I feel like you learn a lot in a very short amount of time. Um, was very challenged, very excited to be there, surrounded by very smart people. I will say, you know, I've obviously done a few cries in a conference room at four in the morning, but who hasn't that's been through it? I think it builds character. I think coming out of there, it built this kind of hard numbers driven technical background that I think was a good jumping off point moving into, into some other roles. So really enjoyed it. Ultimately, was ready to leave and did something I think a little different. I think, you know, most people go into banking because they want to go straight into private equity. I think I'd, you know, had a little bit enough of of that world and wanted to try something different. And I really, really wanted to join a business. I talked to a few people and I think a few analysts with kind of that skill set can go into a business and really make some changes and have an impact. And it's, it's kind of an exciting place to be. So I ended up joining Flywheel Sports, which was a private equity-backed boutique fitness brand that is essentially the SoulCycle competitor. So 42 cycling studios across the United States. At the time, boutique fitness was booming in New York. There was a new place popping up every block. And so I thought it was like a pretty exciting place to work. We were also kind of the underdog. SoulCycle was kind of this giant competitor in the room. So it was exciting. To, you know, how are we going to catch up to them or beat them or kind of stand out in this crowded industry? But overall, like had a great experience, I would say at that company, I can kind of go into that in more detail later if you're interested, because it was it was interesting, but ultimately wanted to go to business school. So decided on that, which is where I learned about the lovely world of search. That was definitely one of the benefits of kind of taking two years off and kind of uprooting your life as I learned about a career path I never would have would have known about before. So what made you choose Harvard for your MBA program? I think business school is like a very personal decision. I think there are a lot of great options out there. I think the reason I chose Harvard, I think first of all, and different strokes for everybody, I think once again, it's a personal decision. I think people there, from what I've learned, actually took kind of the academic portion seriously. And not that I'm a super serious person, but you're taking two years off, you're uprooting your life. You know, I wanted to be in an environment where people have to go to class and kind of have to stay engaged. And I think that really proved to be true there. You know, no laptops, no cell phones, unless you're in the back row. But everyone is, you know, there to be engaged in whatever class you're in. I'm sure it's the same in other business schools as well. I think it's just something that stands out about HBS in particular. I think secondly, I was very intrigued by the case method. I can't say I came to learn any specific 
skill sets at business school. I think a lot of people come in to learn the fundamentals of finance, but kind of already have that background. But I think what it does is it teaches you a way of thinking and how to be a better decision maker. It's actually a very subtle change because someone says, what did you learn at business school? I think I'd have a hard time listing 20 specific things I learned, but it's kind of something that affects your daily life and how you think about things and think through problems and take the opposite side of an opinion and kind of try to understand where someone else is coming from. So I think it's kind of a very subtle way that it changes you. And I think the the network as well. I mean, that's, I think that's part of the reason you go to business school. And there were such dynamite people in my class, like loved getting to know them. And I feel like a lot of those connections will, you know, I'll still have way into the future. So kind of those three reasons. What did you go into your MBA wanting to do? And then through your two years, how did your thinking evolve through your classes and conversations with professors and your classmates? How did you wind your way into search? So I had this experience at Flywheel, which I think is a lens that really helped me come to this decision. It was it was this consumer business. I loved it. I think one change, for example, from from investment banking, I remember my first week on the job at Flywheel, and we were in a meeting with the CEO. And he, I think I put together some analysis on at the time, it probably wasn't important, like, the optimal number of classes on the schedule, and how do we optimize for labor costs with the schedule. And I put together this analysis, you know, by myself, um, it's a small company, small team, and presented it to him. And he said, Okay, go like, go do it. And I never heard that before. I'd, you know, been a banking analyst where you put together all these analyses, you never get to see anything through. And I was like, does someone want to check my work? Are you sure this is right? But you know, we we implemented those changes. I think that becomes like pretty addicting over time is coming to the right conclusions. And even if you're not, even if you're not right, just testing and learning and just trying to have an impact and make the business better. I think it gets pretty addicting over time, I would say. But so I love my experience there. I really was interested in consumer businesses at the time. You know, I'd had this experience. It's so tangible, right? You could go down the street and go to a spinning class and understand what the product is. And you're talking about real consumers and and the behavior of people. And it's really interesting. I will say as kind of my train of thought progresses, not the not great businesses uh, as, I, as I've come to learn. So I think going into business school based on that experience, I, I thought, you know what, I'll go to kind of another consumer business and I'll be, you know, head of finance and ops or, or CFO or, or something of that nature at a small business. So that was kind of my hypothesis going in, I would say. The summer between my business school years, I took a job. It was essentially finance and ops. So exactly what I thought in Los Angeles at a direct to consumer startup. You know, had a similar experience. I think I think I loved that role. It felt a little bit like doing the same thing over again. It didn't really feel like a a growth role for me coming out of school and I think started to feel more like a stepping stone instead of instead of the end goal. So, you know, I'm really happy I kind of took that summer to test that hypothesis because I think it gave me a definitive you know, this was great for a specific time of, of your life and career, but probably not great after school. So happy that I did that. And then I think your next question was how I got into search. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think it's one of those terms that floats around a lot. Like, oh, what's a search fund? You kind of sort of know what it is, but you don't exactly know what it is. And I think what was great about HBS is my second year, I had the summer experience like, oh, no, I thought I wanted to do this after school. I realized that I don't necessarily. What in the world am I going to do? Kind of get back for that second year and start taking the search fund classes. There's one kind of the first semester and one the second semester. Rick and Royce teach it. It's a great class. It's called Financial Management of Smaller Firms. And it's essentially about both the search phase and then the operating phase of search funds. And so I think what it does is really boils down, what does a search fund look like? Who are the types of people that do this? What does your daily life look like? I mean, it makes it very tangible. I think before I'd heard of search funds and thought, 
oh, that's crazy. I could, I could never do that. And what this class does is it makes you realize that you're perfectly capable of doing that. And it's actually a great path to take after school. It is funny, though, I will say, and I think this is a good thing. You know, you have this class. I think they have three sections of it. So quite a few people take the class. I would say 50% of people are like, that sounds terrible. I don't want to do that at all. Who would do that? That makes no sense. So that 50% is gone. Maybe 25% are like, oh, this is, this is like pretty interesting, but maybe not for me. And then you have 25% of the class that actually is, is interested in it and, you know, takes the second class. You kind of go into more detail. It's kind of a more of a hands-on class in the second semester. And then it kind of finally boils down to, you know, the 20 or so people that actually go after it. So it's a really great, I think that year was extremely helpful in terms of figuring out what I wanted to do. I mean, another important piece of it besides just, you know, classroom work is you need to talk to as many searchers as you possibly can. You know, they bring people into class to talk about their experiences and it's fantastic, but There's nothing like hopping on the phone with somebody who's going to tell you exactly what their experience has been like. Be very open with you is something that I've realized. And I think until you've spoken to, um, I think they said in class, talk to 50 searchers. I might not have gotten to 50, but I was probably in the 40s. I think that's an incredibly important piece of it as well. In the second half of your last year, how did you think about putting your search together? How did you think about traditional versus self-funded? How do you find investors? So I will say I probably took a little bit longer than most finally pulled the trigger. I think everybody's a little bit different, but started thinking about this in September. I, I think I officially kind of pulled the trigger in, in late April. I think it varies a lot by person. You know, I know certain people in my class who were raising money in February to search in the summer. You know, we're already just completely 100%. I was probably a little bit more just wanted to be 100% sure, right? This isn't a normal job where you can be two years in and decide, oh, you know what, I don't really like this very much. I'll, I'll switch jobs, which is what the majority of majority of people do, I think, coming out of business school. This is, you know, a seven year or longer commitment. So I wanted to be completely sure. Interviewed around a little bit in January, realized nothing, I would say, confirmed that this was kind of the path I wanted to take. So officially said, okay, I'm doing this in late April. Started putting more thought into the process, putting together a PPM, what is my search really going to look like? Am I going to do a geographic search? Am I going to do an industry focused search? I wanted to get comfortable. I am doing a a Midwest focused search. So I wanted to get comfortable regarding, you know, what states I'm targeting. Are there enough opportunities in those states? And then started really thinking about investors. So I would say kind of went out in early June um, with my PPM, had a lot of investor conversations. Um, I also think that process is a little bit intimidating at first because you don't really know what to expect. But in reality, it I actually found it quite enjoyable just because the search on community is so great and everybody just wants to help you and see you succeed and be very hands-on. I actually found it a very, a very enjoyable experience. I think when I thought about traditional versus self-funded, I think first of all, what's so great about this model is the strong relationships and network and like partnership involved. That's something that really excited me and I didn't necessarily see that happening in a self-funded search. You know, I'm doing this by myself. I'm solo, never done it before. You know, I have experiences, but not everything that I need. And so I think that whole level of partnership and and learning was like very exciting to me. What's going to make this process more enjoyable? I think it's having people around you that are that are helping you, not kind of me operating in a silo. So that's kind of how I thought about it. I also think the likelihood of closing something is just higher. I think because you probably have that constant circle of feedback from investors and, and people to go to. I think it's just an average of two years versus maybe three years or longer for self-funded. So 
that's another attractive piece. And then I, I think economics converge at the end of the day. I think you could point to self-funded and say, this is a much better deal, but you can buy something a little bit, a little bit bigger. And you also have the partnership of your investors. So I think those are, that's kind of how I thought about the self-funded versus traditional, you know, kind of wrap that up by the end of June and went through all the fun legal work and then closed the fund in July. Excellent. So between January and April, when you finally decided to do a search and put one together, was there a, a conversation or a meeting or person who finally pushed you over the edge? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I would love to say yes. But I think what it really is, is I think I thought a lot about it, maybe too long, honestly, because I think you kind of have a gut feeling. You have that 25% of the people in, in Rick and Royce's class that find it interesting. I think you do kind of have a gut feeling early on that this is what's right for you. The way I thought about it probably in that springtime is, okay, what am I more comfortable with looking back at myself at this moment in five years? Am I more comfortable saying, okay, you know, took a job that I was sort of okay with, but it's stable and it's comfortable and maybe eventually I'll, I'll do a search or am I more comfortable doing this right now out of the gate and potentially failing, right? I mean, 30% of people don't find businesses. I didn't think I'd find a bad business. I was hoping mine. I don't think I hopefully would never do that, nor would my investors let me. But what what, are, what can you really stomach five years from now? And for me, it was all about, I knew that I wouldn't be happy unless I did this thing that I really, really wanted to do, regardless of kind of the risks involved. I think that's kind of what pushed me over the edge. What was the search fund program like there? You talked about a few classes. Were there search fund clubs? Were there presentations given by investors? there are panels and opportune places for you to meet other current searchers, past searchers, investors, and other groups? Yes. So I think the program at Harvard is is fantastic. So kind of the first semester you have this first class financial management of smaller firms. And the second is called entrepreneurship through acquisition. And it's more tactical, hands-on, how do you actually kind of do this thing? But to your point, so there's an, there's an ETA club that's extremely active. And, and within these classes as well, so between the classes and the club, I feel like we always had people on campus like searchers, investors, panels, coffee chats. I feel like there were a ton of opportunities to just start talking to people. And you start kind of seeing the same faces over and over again, too. So you start to get to sense, get a sense of what the, what the community's like and who's really active in it. But I thought that was great. And I think it's hard to know. I think, I guess, before business school, you absolutely want to go into this. But if you kind of have a sense that you do, I do think it's important to choose a school that just has a general program related to ETA. If I think about myself, I don't know if I would have gone down this path unless I kind of had this more of a structured, like structured classes. So that's advice I would have for someone even even thinking, looking into it. I know, I mean, obviously Harvard and Stanford have great ones, but I feel like a lot of schools recently, um, you know, within the last five years have really built up great ETA programs. So w- would recommend just kind of making sure you're at a school that, that has those resources. If you went into MBA applications, knowing that you wanted to start a search fund, would you go back to Harvard or is there a school that you might consider as well? I would go back to Harvard. I mean, I, I'm biased, right? It really did the, the trick for me in terms of learning about all of the steps of the search process. But I think more than that, it's just making it very tangible. You read these cases about these people who are, you know, maybe just four years ahead of you and you can like really see yourself in that person's shoes and making those decisions and doing doing all the things that they did. And I think that's really powerful because I think on the outset, you could say, oh, search funds, how am I supposed to be 30 and go be CEO of a business? That's crazy, which I think is probably what I thought, you know, before going to business school. But then these classes just break it down and make you realize, you know, I'm perfectly capable of doing that. So with doing a traditional search, how did you choose the investors who you don't have to name any of them if you don't want to or feel comfortable doing that? But how did you choose the investors that you have? 
So there are a lot of different options out there these days, which is which is great because I think similar to business school or career choice, you know, there's a different option for everybody. I think now you kind of see the accelerators popping up. Soul sponsor, you kind of go to their office to search. You know, it's you have a cohort of other searchers, and then you kind of have the opposite end of the spectrum where you have 20 different investors. Maybe you don't necessarily have a point person that you go to for kind of daily questions and things like that. So the way I thought about it, I went I went somewhere in the middle. So I I'm working with Footbridge partners and they have a little bit of a different model. So they take 40% of a fund, but I, I really see them kind of as my, I'm a solo searcher as kind of my partner in all of this. I just kicked off my my search, I guess, last Monday, but they've already kind of proven to be, they are my constant contact. We have, you know, weekly check-ins, we're texting, we're on the phone, you know, it, it really is great. And so that's kind of how I thought about that. So I, I ended up with a group of 10 investors, but, you know, I feel like they're, they're kind of important to highlight. How are you going to structure your day throughout your search? So you're in a co-working space. How do you plan out your days and your meetings and your calls and all this other stuff? So how do you get into life as a searcher? It's a great question. I mean, I'm a week in right now. And I mean, I was laughing to my friend the other day. I had this massive list of things to do last Monday. And I think I got through, you know, a third of it on day one. So it just seems like it might be one of those things where you never get everything you want to get done in a day. And I was amazed at how long, how much time I spent on the phone with brokers and people that I know and trying, just trying to get my name out there. You know, it's very time consuming. So to your point, I think I'm figuring out how I want to structure my day. I think I need a little bit more structure. I think it might make sense to kind of break up, you know, in the mornings I come in and do X, Y, and Z in the afternoons. That's when I do kind of my broker and owner calls. I'm kind of thinking through that right now because last week was kind of a mad sprint and probably wasn't so organized. How did your first week go? Oh my gosh. Well, it was great, I would say, but it I had like such high hopes for the amount of stuff I would get done. And then suddenly the week's over and you've made it through like half your to-do list. So I'm sure that will continue to happen, but it's going well. I feel like I'm still kind of doing, unfortunately, some some setup stuff. How do I think about intern onboarding and making sure they know like how to do certain tasks and and what's the right cadence of check-ins and kind of, you know, just some more admin stuff like that, that hopefully once I, it's a one and done, but yeah, mostly been, been talking to brokers and kind of my personal network. So, but I, I hope to kind of start really going out to owners today. How many interns do you think you'll have? I feel like I hit it at kind of a weird time because a lot of people are finishing up their summer internships, but then they have they haven't really started school yet either. So I have one guy from Harvard undergrad who started today and he'll be here for the next month. And then I think I'm going to essentially have like a semester cohort, probably around five that starts early September and goes through the semester. I guess searcher tip, I put an application on Handshake and I got like a million applications. So if anyone's listening to this, <laughs> use Handshake. But yeah, I mean, there's there's such great people out there who seem very eager to just kind of learn. So excited to work with some some undergrads. There's obviously not as many female searchers as we'd like. So it's an interesting point of differentiation being a female searcher. So how are you adding that into your search as well? Yeah, no, I think that's a very important question. I will say, I think we have four women out of my HBS class this year, maybe more actually, but four, four off the top of my head. And we also have a, a fun WhatsApp chat group about the funny things we hear from uh, from business owners and, and brokers, which are, you know, p- uh, piling up, I will say. So I mean, I do think there is a competitive advantage to it. And, and don't quote me on this, but it's just little tidbits I've heard kind of from investors. 
that while, you know, the failure to find a business is about 30% these days or maybe a bit more, I think women have a little bit of a higher likelihood of actually finding something. And I don't know if that's just because we're underrepresented and maybe we stick out from the crowd. So when you're getting a ton of emails from different people, maybe receiving an email from a woman maybe just stands out a little bit more, maybe a higher likelihood of, of responding. I think the way I'm thinking about it specifically is I definitely want to target female-owned businesses if possible in the area, just because I think that's a, a great way to to stand out. And I assume a female entrepreneur would love nothing more than to pass down a business to another female entrepreneur. So I feel like in terms of my specific competitive advantages, you know, I might as I might as well kind of really push on the the Midwest button and the female button because why not? Another thing to think about when I was thinking about searching, you know, you've seen all that data, and women are just less likely to kind of take a major risk than men. I think there was you know a few studies that came out about that the other day and or last year and you know that's kind of in the back of my head right when I was deciding to go down this path of why am I hesitating a little bit not saying that I'm sure there are women out there who are totally risk averse and not I'm not trying to generalize but it wasn't the back of my head like I want to take this risk the underrepresentation of women in search wasn't a you didn't see it as intimidating you saw as just another challenge to take on within search I actually thought it was pretty exciting there's an opportunity there and I do think women might have a better also not to generalize but you know I think have typically a pretty high EQ and I think in terms of building relationships with business owners I think that's a place where a lot of women can really excel and hopefully I will also excel and so I think it's I think the underrepresentation is like a huge opportunity here yeah certainly I mean that's going to stick out in any owner's mind when they hear because I mean, most business buyers are going to hear from our men. So hearing a woman almost regardless of what your pitch is like you're going to stand out in their mind. Yeah, and I think I've already hopefully sort of using it to my advantage. So um, I'm based out of St. Louis, I can't remember if I mentioned that, but I joined a female-focused co-working space. They happily accept men, but just generally female-focused. And I've already been introduced to about a dozen people who then passed me on to five of their contacts. So it's already kind of paying dividends, I would say. So that's kind of a way I've set myself up. You said there were a few conferences of female entrepreneurs and founders. Are there a few that you can join in your area? So it's funny, I have them teed up. A lot of them are annual memberships. And I feel like during this very strange time we're all living through, um, trying to wait until it opens back up. But there you know, are a ton of networks in the Midwest, I think in every city on female executives. The names are slipping my mind at this moment. But the goal would be to join as many as possible, obviously, and hopefully be in the right place at the right time. How do you mentally prepare for a search, knowing that you're going to have a bad day here and there, and you need to pick yourself back up and come into the next day ready to go? Yeah, no, I, it's something I've been thinking about. I think, first of all, something I've noticed, and I think probably a lot of people who choose to go down this path are, are this way. I need to put some guideposts around when is work time and when do you kind of go home and call it a night. I think it can easily bleed into all hours of the day. And I think from a mental health perspective, need to put some some guideposts around. Part of it is just being in a good mental and physical space. I know that sounds silly, but I've talked to searchers who find it, you know, extremely helpful to have a great workout routine, eat very well, and just kind of be in a good headspace. Um, I think that'll be important, especially after business school, which was unfortunately a lot of eating and drinking, would be excited to get back into um, into a schedule like that. I also think, I mean, the question is, how do you pull yourself out of a bad headspace? Because I think it's easy to especially when you're kind of operating in a silo to think yourself into a hole of this isn't going well, or this conversation went so poorly. And how do you rebound from that? I think, I think it's just taking a deep breath, honestly, every once in a while, I think I'm trying to incorporate, you know, some of those five minute meditation things into my into my daily schedule, not going so well right now. But 
hopefully it's kind of part of it going forward. But I think it's just the ability to kind of pull yourself out of a bad, bad headspace whenever something gets you down. I guess we never talked about the types of businesses you're going after. So is there a particular industry? You mentioned consumer, having having consumer backgrounds. Are you looking for consumer businesses or did those experiences turn you off to consumer and you're looking at something else instead? Oh my gosh, I should have mentioned this. They completely turned me off of consumer businesses. I think after my experience at Flywheel, you think, okay, maybe this was just a bad experience. I should I should probably add that business, you know, has not has not trended well since I've been gone. But then I kind of had my second experience last summer. And while that was a pretty good business, I think consumer businesses are just so difficult. While they can be extremely fun, you understand the product, you understand the service, you are a consumer of those products and services, you are subject to the whims of consumer preferences. And those are so, so hard to predict. And building, you know, a very loyal and sticky customer base as a consumer business is is near impossible. So definitely ready to leave those um, in the dust, I would say. So only pretty much looking at, at B2B businesses, something that's mission critical, services based, you know, honestly, kind of your classic search criteria, which I'm sure you've heard a million times, probably staying away from any anything manufacturing related. And then I am doing a geographic search. So while I will be industry focused, I'm from the Midwest, I, I'm excited to kind of be back. I feel like sometimes once people leave for the East Coast, they don't typically come back. So I'm excited to to buy a business in the area. And so I'm looking in in the nine states around Missouri. Kansas over to Ohio, up to Illinois and, and down to Tennessee. So that's kind of where I'll be looking. One last question about consumer. Did you find any business models within consumer that would be attractive to a searcher? Yeah, that's a good question. Maybe I'm so jaded by my experiences, I haven't even given it a second thought. But, you know, I do think like med spas have some merit. Not that they have recurring revenue by any means, but I, I do think there's a level of, of customer loyalty and, and repeat revenue. I think th- those could potentially be of interest. And I feel like a lot of searchers have actually acquired in that space. And I, I understand why. I imagine being from the Midwest is also compelling when talking to owners. Have you found that to be the case too? I actually have. And it's interesting. I, I found it with brokers as well. You know, I'm kind of in the early phase. So I've been talking to more brokers recently to generate that initial initial deal flow. But I actually do think it resonates. You know, I've put it in my outreach emails. I'm from Kansas City, living in St. Louis, really want to buy in the Midwest. And it's come up on every call. And so I, I do think it's a nice a nice differentiator. And I do, th- I hopefully think there'll be, you know, some benefit to a level of, of geographic focus instead of saying I'm looking in all 50 states. I think there might be a little bit of a benefit to just being focused on one region. What class in college would you teach if you can teach about anything you wanted? I love this question. It's hilarious. So this might sound a bit weird, but at at Vanderbilt, there was this class and it was called, it it was called human sexuality, which sounds bizarre, I know. But what it was really about is, you know, the history of humankind and how man has evolved over time. And it it was honestly my, one of my favorite classes at Vanderbilt. And then I, I read the book Sapiens. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Also kind of a similar theme, just how humans have progressed over time and kind of what are the key moments in human history that have made us to be the way we are. So it would probably be some class kind of surrounding those those topics and themes. What's a belief you used to hold strongly that you've since changed your mind on? I, I thought about this question. I, I Something came into my mind. It's not particularly deep, but I remember moving to New York City and saying, I will be here forever. I will die in Manhattan. You know, I am a New Yorker forever. And it's funny how, how quickly um, that feeling dissipates. So it, life is hard there after a while. So I am I am thrilled to move back to the Midwest. Is there something about New York that you got tired of after a while in particular? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many, there are so many benefits to New York, but I just think um, the general level of of daily anxiety can be can be tiring at times. And it's funny, I feel like I moved to to New York kind of from the Midwest and then and then from Nashville. And I'll never forget, you know, here, when you're on an elevator with somebody, you, you say hello, you say good morning, you strike up a conversation, just kind of how things operate here. I will never forget getting into the elevator at Bank of America one morning and chatting up someone that was probably a managing director. And they looked at me like I was insane. And so, you know, I think there's a layer of of just general kind of anxiety and friendliness and go, go, go that, you know, I think I, I missed after a period of time. And obviously it is so expensive. So happy to uh, be back at a place that's maybe slightly more reasonable. Yeah, certainly. What's the best business you've come across? I'm still early. I will preface this by saying that, but it's actually something my came across my fiance's desk a couple of, of months ago, and I thought it was hilariously interesting. It was a garbage concierge service for apartment complexes that not that go kind of up and down, but that kind of sprawl across uh, some land. So you can't necessarily use garbage chutes. I think it was 6 million in revenue, 3 million in EBITDA, like insane margins, flexible labor force, no overhead. It was just recurring revenue. It had basically like checked every box. So that I thought that was pretty interesting and something I never, you know, would even know was out there. Did he buy it? He did not actually. He passed on it. Um, they were kind of in the middle of another deal. So I think that's part of the reason, but... Interesting. Was there something else about the business maybe that they they weren't really interested in? Off the top of my head, I don't think so. I think it kind of checked every box. I mean, I think there there are no barriers to entry in that market. I assume anyone can kind of start a garbage concierge service. That might be the one the one downside. But other than that, it was like completely flexible gravy train. Thanks for joining us today. I'm glad to hear from a searcher about to begin. So congrats on your, your first week. And I'm excited to follow your search as it progresses here. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you liked today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood and & Strong, and Traction Capital Partners for helping support the podcast. For show notes and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast.